Ashe all day family. Welcome to a very special Juneteenth episode. Uh, yes. Today is not a celebration. No, I'm not calling it that at all. What I am going to call it is an opportunity to raise awareness about what is still happening in our society regarding slavery, mindset, um, the current state of what is the modern day slave trade, and a few other things. Specifically, uh, Josiah Henson, we'll be talking about him a little bit, and what that really means. So, it wasn't until recently that I learned what an Uncle Tom was. Yeah. The first example that I'm going to give to you today is sort of the appropriation of something that is a positive message that then gets turned into the negative. And one of the most glaring examples of that for me in my life is the story by Harriet Beecher Stowe, the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. In my youth, I grew up in the middle of Montana. For most of my life, I was brought into this real existence, if you will, in northern Idaho, not far from a very active center for white supremacy. I was blessed to have the experience of understanding racism from a very young age. The first day of kindergarten for me, um, another a peer, another kindergartner called me a nigger. That was my welcome to public school. And I had heard stories and my mom did her best to sort of prepare me for that kind of thing out in the world. But to actually experience that, and I knew what the word meant, I had been told intellectually, I knew what the word meant, but I had never experienced that feeling one-on-one without my mom or another member of my family around. And I will tell you that I do not use that word ever. As a little boy, what that did to me, the damage was significant And so that set the tone of my experience. I was singled out often. I would partake in drawing army men and stuff like that on my homework assignments. And I would be called into the principal's office, even though I was sitting next to another little white kid who was drawing guns and the same exact war stuff that he wanted to draw. I got talked to continue that into living in Montana. Look, I'm grateful for my experience in Montana. It was incredible to grow up there. But this is the part that people don't like to hear. I experienced racism and ignorance as a very small, young boy. And then people would wonder, well, why does he act that way? Why doesn't he just get along? Well, it's because you've been telling me that I'm worthless most of my life. You've been telling me that I mean nothing to you. Even when it came to playing sports or other activities, any of that stuff, it was made very clear to me from a very young age that... People didn't want anything to do with me, that I was less than, that I was dirty, and it was because of the color of my skin. From members of the school faculty, teachers, coaches, 
and other students, there was nowhere for me to turn in Montana, not even at home. When teachers were racist to me at school, I wasn't protected from that. There was a situation that I was put in that a teacher specifically said to sit down, shut up, and start acting like white people. She said this to an entire bus full of kids. And I had them stop the bus. I got off and I walked like six, seven miles home. And I told my mom what happened and she worked at the school. She was an administrator at the school. And the only thing that came of it was an apology from the teacher. That was it. And I asked my mom why. And man, it was just a lot of formative stuff. I'll keep the rest of that story to myself, but that's really what you need to know. This stuff still goes on. People ask me, why don't you move back to Montana? Why don't you move back to this area? Why don't you do this? No, this stuff still goes on. That's part of the reason that I try so hard to get my kids out of there. So that's a little bit of background. I grew up with a white family and a white culture with a white mindset. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I was able to forgive myself for the internal racism and the self-hate that I had been carrying around with me for almost 35 years. And that's why Juneteenth is not a celebration to me. That is why Juneteenth is an opportunity to raise awareness about the societal programming and the truth of systemic racism that still poisons our culture today. So, now that we're in this space together, maybe you have a little bit of an idea of what this kind of stuff, the impact that it can have on someone. True self-hatred because of the color of my own skin. Nowhere to turn, growing up alone, no other black people, no other people of culture for hundreds of miles. Get out a pen and pull up Google Maps and ask it to show you the geographic center of the state of Montana. And that's basically what I was living with. And that's okay. That's okay. Because it made me who I am today. So when I say that my first exposure to what an Uncle Tom was, was in the negative connotation, I mean that. And I understand that there are people who have probably significantly deeper stories of racism and the impact than I do, but this is my experience. I didn't have, I didn't have anyone of color to go home to and talk about this stuff with. I didn't have anyone. I had what my examples were MTV. I didn't even have internet, like, you know, hip hop and that kind of stuff. Comedy Friday, stuff like that. I didn't have what I would consider to be positive black role models growing up. And the access to information was so limited where I was from in the middle of Montana. Uh, I had a lot to learn when I got into the world. I had a lot to learn when I got into the world and I have been, and that's beautiful. So 
This is why it is so important to me to share with you the story of Josiah uh, Henson, who really is one of the foundations of the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. So Josiah was a very blessed child in a lot of ways, incredibly intelligent, able to problem solve from a young age, um, described as being physically a specimen, really, in all ways. And literally, I mean, back then they would, <laughs> they bred us to work fields, to be labor outputters, to break our bodies for profit. That's what they bred us for. And you still see that stuff rewarded in the NFL and the NBA and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. People who are creating value are making minimal returns. Yeah. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars, but when you have a billion dollar industry, multi-billions of dollars are made because of the draw of these people. And that's how it was really in the slave trade too. Millions, millions and millions and millions, so much money, so much profit was turned on the backs of black people in this country. And Josiah Henson was one of them. And the reason that I want to talk to, talk about him is because his story is so incredible. It's a story of, one, it's a story of non-duality. It's a story of effortless truth. It's a story of perseverance, mindset, determination, ingenuity, and entrepreneurship. Josiah Henson is, in my opinion, the OG black entrepreneur. And we should all be just emulating that as much as we can. So there are some parts of the story that are hard to understand and internalize, but we all have opportunities like this in some way, shape or form. So he rose up through the ranks um, on the plantation. There were several different levels of positions on a plantation. And Josiah's journey was, man, it was incredible. So he started out as a field hand, just like many slaves would, obviously just being worked and worked and worked, um, planting, cultivating, harvesting crops like tobacco, cotton, those kinds of things. Uh, eventually he worked his way up to being an overseer. Overseers were exceptionally strong, intelligent, hardworking, more productive, and would obviously be displaying some desirable characteristics to a slave owner who was trying to run a profit maximizing business. So I want you to go ahead and just consider what you know about labor, about management, and we're going to get into some of the conditions of what slavery was like in a bit, but this is just, it's so eye-opening and it's a very emotional topic. So after he had become an overseer, he was moved into steward and steward, um, that's a, that's an even higher position of authority and responsibility and this allowed Josiah to get experience in managing the 
plantations affairs, supervising other slaves, other enslaved individuals, uh, even being involved in financial transactions, the distribution and purchase of supplies and food among the slaves and throughout the plantation. And in further reading and investigation that I did, Josiah was even going to and from the auction to buy and sell other slaves. Essentially, he worked his way up from a field hand to the position of managing the entire plantation business. Um, This is a guy who was able to teach himself to read and write by emulating what he saw the white children doing and any exercises or curriculum or studies that he saw them doing, he would just try to copy that. So that tells you so much about his character. Now, I know there are probably people out there who are going to say some of the things that I'm about to say, and I'm going to just address that up front. He was put in a position where he had to discipline other slaves. He was put in a position where he was responsible for keeping things productive and keeping things moving. And even as I did this research, I had a hard time integrating the, the truth of that with the truth that he is one of the most exceptional black entrepreneurs of all time. For him to be able to achieve what he achieved, and based on what I've read, I wholeheartedly believe that this man took no pleasure in his role as, as an overseer, as a steward. And even when he became a driver, uh, driving the owner of the plantation around to and from, attending meetings and those kinds of things, um, I don't think that he took, I don't think he took kindly to any of that. And I think it furthered his motivation to make sure that he could attain freedom for himself and for his family as his story continued to unfold. This is a man who was incredibly intentional about everything that he was doing. From all of the reading and everything that I could find, he was very clear from the outset that he was going to be a free man. He kept his word. He kept his integrity. He, you know, just... Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, And what is not talked about very often, and I'm just going to touch on this briefly because I don't want to glorify this. I don't want any of that kind of stuff going on. But the conditions in slavery were brutal. They weren't hard. They weren't rough. They were brutal. There is slave doctrine floating out there that you can find that talks about things like the mental, emotional, and physical abuse of slaves to keep them in line. There is doctrine out there floating around that you can find in your own research that specifically talks about how to cause slaves to infight amongst each other based on the degrees of blackness, light skin and dark skin. You still see that happening today. I've even, ex- I've experienced that. I'm, I'm not black enough for black people. I'm not white enough for white people. And then even when it comes in, then I'm categorized as light skinned, but then I'm not black enough to be light skinned because I act white, like all this stuff, man, there's so many layers and it's been programmed for centuries, centuries. And this isn't even the, like, that's just the tip of the iceberg, Right. 
So now looking into this and doing more research, you had, you had things where a disobedient male slave would be brought in front of the entire plantation. They would be whipped and flogged. They would be tarred and feathered. They would then be tied each hand and feet to different horses, continuously whipped, and the horses driven until the person was ripped to pieces, drawn and quartered, to, and not to keep the other slaves in line. You also have things like buck breaking. It's easy to go look this up. It's absolutely horrific. This is the sexual abuse, the rape of male slaves in front of the other slaves by the white owners of the slaves, male slaves, after they've been whipped, after they've been beaten, after they've been flogged in order to establish dominance and to degrade and demoralize and to just absolutely destroy them. This raises so many other questions about what's going on with the slave owners who are out happily raping their male slaves, but that's another topic. Um, just the absolute sexual abuse and atrocities and physical abuse. They're unspeakable. You hear about lynchings and that kind of stuff is talked about, but that's just like lynching is awful. Absolutely awful. But that's just surface stuff. That's still discussed. I was 37 years old when I heard, when I learned about these other things that I just shared with you. So those are the kinds of things they faced. So to be in a position like Josiah Henson and to work so diligently to ensure that you can free yourself and you can free your family, he eventually did, did become free. Like I said, this story of uncle Tom is highly influenced by his life. Him, he and his family made it to Canada, uh, upper Canada. Um, it's now Ontario. They called it the Don settlement. This was in 19, in 1841. They called this the Don settlement. And he dedicated his life to growing a business, freeing other slaves and creating a community where black people could flourish. This is what makes him one of the most value-creating black entrepreneurs, in my mind, of all time. He learned how to navigate and operate in the system without becoming part of the system. And we can talk about that all day. Hit me up if you have a problem with that. Um, he freed himself from the system. Literally, he freed himself from slavery. He took his family with him. And then he started bringing other people along. Sounds very biblical. Then he continued to grow a business and become, he was so successful and so influential and he was a speaker and he was very well recognized as a preacher, a minister, a very devout Christian, uh, Josiah Henson. And I bring this up because this is the type of role model that I feel like in a lot of ways is missing. And please, if you're listening to this, blow up the comments with other people that you can think of off the top of your head who are truly doing this stuff because this man stayed out of the system. He truly stayed out of the system. And he did that so that he could help other people 
get out of the system too. Think about how hard that must have been. The atrocities and the pain. Any moment, members of your family could literally be sold and taken to an entirely different place. You might never see them again. His mother's tears are what kept him and her together when they were at auction and he was a little boy. And his father was sold to a different owner, a different plantation. And the person who purchased Josiah and his mother um, probably changed the course of history inadvertently, but we're always, all of us, are being used for a design that is even bigger and even more grand than we could possibly imagine. Never forget that. Ever since I learned about Josiah, I have kept that at least in the back of my mind of everything that he was able to accomplish as he moved through life, as he faced these difficulties, as he faced this horror He truly rose above all of it. And in so doing, he was able to help his brothers and sisters and changed the course of history. Uncle Tom's Cabin has been translated into over 50 languages. It's one of the most influential books of all time. And because it was so influential and so true and so impactful, The phrase Uncle Tom was co-opted by bad actors, by racists, by supremacists. Uh, The story was changed. There were plays. There were literally marketing campaigns put on to disparage the work, to raise public awareness for an alternative version of Uncle Tom. The kind of, yes, Amasa, I turn on my race um, type of stuff in that, in that version, in the, in the racist version, the end of the story ends up being that the main character, uncle Tom ends up selling out his people. And so that is what I was raised up with the belief that an uncle Tom or the understanding that an uncle Tom was some sort of race trader or was some sort of negative stereotype. I mean, even I think that only, I only heard it a few times, but it was definitely always said in the way of like, don't be an uncle Tom. But then I did some research and then come to find out that it's a beautiful story based on so much truth about some of the most influential and highly impactful and value creating black people who truly broke the system. And that's what we need today, right now, in this moment. We need people of every color to break the system. We need people of every color to break the system. It will put you at great risk. It will alienate people from your lives. 
It will hurt. It is not easy. If you remain faithful and dedicated, there's a very, very high likelihood that you will be blessed as part of this great awakening and that you will make an impact far beyond anything you could have ever imagined. It's beautiful. And I believe in you. So what does slavery look like today? Well, we still have the Arabic slave trade that happens overseas, even in the United States. Um, You know, people are aware of child labor, sweatshops, and those kinds of things. I was fortunate enough to spend some time in Dubai, or not Dubai, excuse me, in Bahrain. And what you see there is a lot of Bangladeshis, a lot of people from India, a lot of Filipinos um, who are all there doing incredibly incredibly difficult manual labor in the heat, uh, in degrading conditions, being paid very little, um, and working for the ruling class, essentially. That's modern slavery. And that's not even the full extent of it. That's not even including the human trafficking and the sex trade that's going on. That's a whole nother story. And I don't have statistics for you on this right now. They're not important. As long as it's still happening to one person, that's one person too many. But the numbers are in the millions. Yeah. Let that sink in. Not thousands, not tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands. You start expanding out and you look globally at China, at Russia, the Middle East, even here in the United States. Show me a massage parlor that's not sketchy. Go up, you know, on 99 and tell me that there's not human trafficking happening. It's rampant and people turn a blind eye. So... That's modern slavery. That's one slice of it. We haven't even talked about the incarceration system yet. My exposure to that first order effects is that I have never met my father because he has essentially been locked up his, my entire life. Now he deserves it in some ways. I don't know that he has rehabilitated himself when I did reach out to him for the first time in my life. The letter that I got back was dripping with attempted manipulation and outright lies. So I don't, I don't know in his case what to think about that, but I do know that being institutionalized doesn't help anyone reintegrate into society. And it certainly doesn't address any mental health or spiritual, or soul issues that are happening in a person that is trapped in that system, truly. So we've got to really take a look at that. I did some research the other day and it it's $35,000, $40,000 a year to house an inmate in Washington state. And 
Washington state has a population of 3% uh, black, black people. Um, these numbers, there, there might be slight error in my memory because I did not look this up today, but I was writing poetry and stuff about around this topic. And I remember doing a deep dive into these numbers and the, the rate of incarceration, like the distribution of the population who is incarcerated in Washington state is significantly skewed, um, by three or four times, if I remember correctly, the, if you're seeing a system that works properly, you should see an even cross section basically of the population that's represented. The overall population should be pretty evenly distributed throughout that society. When you see a statistic that is skewed three, four, five, six times for one subset of that population, there is some intrinsic systemic systematic issue or bias or intentional programming that is going on that is definitely targeting that class or that group of people. If you had, if you had data of any other kind like that and you had an outlier like that, you would immediately be suspicious. You might end up throwing it out, the data set. You might end up throwing it out. You would definitely do an investigation into, well, why is this guy here? But when it comes to our prison population, nobody's asking that question. People are. That's dramatic. It's overly dramatic. People are asking that question. But what I've found is that no one is actually willing to do anything about prison reform. There are very few places who are actually doing anything about prison reform. And that is because it is a very, very, very profitable industry. Because it is the equivalent of modern day slavery. Now, I'll be honest with you. I sold a little weed when I was in college. Yep, I sure did. I sold three and a half grams of marijuana to a fellow student who happened to literally be wearing a wire. So when the cops came, like six cops deep rolled up to my job on campus and arrested me. Got cuffed, got put in a cop car, got taken to jail. The whole works. Um, met with the detective and what they wanted from me was for me to be a snitch. They told me if I go out and I find three other people who are selling drugs, that they'd give me my file. It could all just be brushed under the rug. Well, instead of doing that, I went and got a lawyer because there's no way I was going to be a snitch. Um, no, absolutely not. And get out of here. It's three and a half grams of weed. Go do your job. There's somebody being raped. There's someone being abused. There are people who actually need you guys. But no, instead you come to somebody who is selling <laughs> very small amounts of cannabis to a kid that I had class with. I thought he was a little homie, you know, whatever. So I ended up with six to seven months of pretrial diversion where you're basically on probation. You have to call the color line every day. You have to go and you have to pee in a cup. You got to report like you have to do the whole thing. And that's before you're even actually like found guilty. They charge you for that. It costs money. There are tests involved. There are no excuses. If you don't show up, you are going to probably end up back in jail. Once that finally, once I finally got a court date, I got two years of deferred felony probation. Yeah. For three and a half grams of marijuana. They were talking about sending me to jail for a year because I didn't snitch. I had, I had a lawyer, all that stuff. 
ended up with two and a half years uh, or two years of deferred felony probation. And what that means is more of the same calling every day, going to pee in a cup, having a uh, probation officer. And that in and of itself is an entire other issue. The first probation officer I had was not a very nice person. Look, I get it. You deal with people often who may be a bit tricky, who may be a bit troublesome, but this guy had a problem with everybody. He got off on being hard and he was essentially my God for about the first year and a half that I was on probation. And it was, it was not awesome. It was not, it was incredibly difficult. It was a constant strain on me and one misstep, one mistake. And I could have gone to jail full on. Um, you know, I was blessed eventually to get the other side of that coin. I ended up moving and got to transfer my stuff over to a different County. And I got a, a PO who was actually quite nice and saw that like, Oh, you went, you just finished college and you have a job and you're doing this and you have like, he saw more, he saw the person, he saw me as a person. And because of that, I was able to get off probation early and some other things. And there was just, just to be exposed to all of that. I have a completely different perspective on all of it. And then I have people in my family who have been incarcerated as well. And it's just the system is, it's mind boggling that anyone is okay with the way that this goes. And it is a literal house of horrors, prison, jail, all that stuff. It's, it's inhumane. It's, it's cruel and unusual. It's not okay. And it is modern slavery is absolutely modern slavery. So what do we do about it? What do we do about these things? Well, first of all, we need to make sure that we have positive role models in our communities. We need more people of culture to speak up, put yourself out there, have a message. Do not be afraid. What if, if you make a positive impact and it drives change, you have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose. But if you're, if you're a person of culture and you're sitting on your abundance and you're not acting to ensure that other people are able to have those opportunities or that there is a more fair system for the next generation, then you're part of the problem. This is a direct call to action to everybody out there to put your money where your mouth is, to put your heart out there and to actually make some moves and speak up and do something about all of this. Be like Josiah Henson. Build a community, bring people along, buy people out of slavery, help others. There is a long running scarcity mindset programmed into people of culture. And that is by design. And unless we do something about it ourselves, it's never going to change. And it takes this technology and this word magic and this awareness of the collective for us to be able to make a change and to impact things. This trauma is stored in your body. This trauma is epigenetic. 
this trauma continues to be portrayed in TV and movies and music. The message is deep and wide and it is not stopping. Point it out when you see it. Speak up. Vote with your dollar. What you give your attention to is what you worship. And if you're participating in a system that is actively oppressing you and your people, then you're part of the problem. So, you can't say you love somebody and not burn down the system that oppresses them or hurts them. So how do we do that intelligently? We educate ourselves. We gather as much wisdom into our culture about our roots and our people and our destiny and our birthright as possible. We make intelligent moves. We buy businesses. We build black community. We, hold, we help each other up. We give low interest or no interest loans to the young entrepreneur who wants to start a business. If you're abundant financially, spread that wealth around. If you're abundant in knowledge, spread that wealth around. If you're abundant in connections, spread that wealth around. You could probably pick up the phone and connect two or three people that you know right now and make a positive impact on their lives and help them start a business. What skills do you have to bring to the table that you're keeping to yourself? We've been told for ages not to act, that we should be terrified of it. I invite you today to take one action, to make one move that you believe in your heart you are called to and that will create value for your community and for yourself. I truly believe that one of the best books on these subjects that I've read is Hebrews to Negroes. And it's absolutely phenomenal. I'm not going to get into all of it right now. I'm just going to leave that out there for you to consider checking out the book Hebrews to Negroes. It is, it's absolutely incredible. The research that was done, the invitation to do your own research. It gave me so much to think about. It gave me so much to think about. So read it twice. Listen to it on Audible, pick up a hard copy. I am not sponsored by that. I just think that for me, it was one of the most impactful and informative books I've ever been able to get my hands on. And I would love it if more people gave it a look. Thank you so much for joining me. Today was a difficult conversation. I hope that you got a lot of value out of it. I hope that you're motivated to make change. This is in my heart. This is where my purpose lies. This is what I am meant to do. And it's, there's no other choice for me. And I hope with all my heart that we can create the space together where you can live a fully expressed life, that you can embody the Ashe all day way and really just integrate the pieces of yourself 
Like I told you at the beginning of this episode, I used to be a self-hating, internally racist black man that grew up under the big sky, white as a lily. And through deep, deep work, I was able to integrate all of that, to love myself deeply and truly, to make choices that drove change. And now life is so juicy. So Ashe all day, my friends, take good care of yourselves. I love you, family.